Yeah. So, so you didn't really know us going into this. No. <laughs> <laughs> if you could describe what we just did here in one word, your dinner with racers that you just had, what would it be? Um, can I say bullshit? <laughs> yes, you can. It's a casual dinner with a lot of good car talk bull. And now for Dinner with Racers, presented by Continental Tire. With your hosts, Ryan Eversley and Sean Heckman. Placeholder Radio. Welcome to Dinner with Racers. Dinner with Racers. This is a special episode based off of our brand new Amazon Prime series. We are on Amazon Prime in a six-part documentary series. So what we've done is we've, uh, you know, we're in a limited time slot when you're on TV, as I know now, and we over-record everything, don't we, Sean? Yep. Yeah, and, we do. And that's just how it is, right? That's how uh, everyone does it. Okay, so I, I'm not thinking this is just you this is how the whole no, world every, does everyone uh -huh. when they're doing uh, uh -huh. when they're doing a mini documentary yeah. would spend nine days in Virginia exactly and because of that we ended up with a lot of extra cool stuff so when we went to VIR we sat down with anybody who's anybody that has anything to do with VIR so with all that extra footage we thought hey there's some pretty big VIR fans out there let's give them the goods we went all through Virginia and the surrounding area to get some cool stories. You'll see a lot of this in our Amazon Prime show. I mean, we even went to New Jersey That's to right. get a unique story about yeah. VIR. Uh, so we covered it as best we could. But we had some key figures who, of course, gave us a lot of material when we spoke with. Uh, and we just couldn't put everything into a, you know, a simple mini documentary. That's right. So amongst our travels, we decided, hey, let's throw this together, have a little bit of extra special good times for them, and uh, came up with this VIR episode. So once again, we traversed the eastern part of the country to make this happen, all in this uh, Acura MDX, which had what kind of tires, right? Black round ones. Right. The what about the ones that are responsible for us getting on Amazon Prime? Oh, so they do. They give us an Amazon Prime series, and now I got to like jump up and down for them. Yeah. That's exactly how this works. This right? is how. This is ah, not. Got it. Ryan, Welcome to Hollywood. This is not called show fun. This is called show, show business. business. If Got I it. hear any of you fans say that, <laughs> if I hear any fans say that, you know where you got it from. You got it from the Renegade. How dare, but <laughs> it's coming back. I want out. Cardinal tires. <laughs> VIR's resurgence in the early 2000s would not have been possible if it wasn't for the vision of Harvey Siegel. Harvey, a longtime businessman, a self-proclaimed serial entrepreneur, but in a real way, was able to kind of get VIR and, and rebuild it and get it going with the help of several people that we've talked about in this episode. So we actually drove out to Oldwick, New Jersey, and uh, sat down with Harvey at the Tewksbury Inn. Really cool little town. Drove past a hot air balloon parade that was happening. That was pretty neat. And uh, I had the calamari... <laughs> We did have a calamari. We did. And uh, you had the chicken sandwich. I'll just go ahead and do that for you. Yeah. 
and uh, we had a really nice time. That just like this cool old rustic, almost like a bed and breakfast vibe there. Yeah, and, uh, it, it's straight out of the 18th century. Yeah, very very neat. And uh, Harvey was able to tell us why he did this and uh, a lot of the background behind him and Connie's relationship. Now, one quick technical note: this was one of the early interviews in our VIR episode, and we tried to do a different style where we were going to do it with lav mics, mm-hmm. and uh, it didn't work out for our others. Uh, so this may sound different from others simply because it was recorded on lavalier mics, not a traditional headset. Uh, but I, it, it should sound just fine. Harvey Siegel. Meow. All right, we're going to start in five, four, three, two. Hi. All right. <laughs> so. How far do you live from here? A uh, half hour. Okay. And that makes it a nice drive. Okay. If you take something interesting on the road. Yeah. The end. <laughs> well, thanks for coming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tuxedo again. It's uh, for me. It's a destination because I live. You know, that magical half hour allows me to get into one of my cars and mm-hmm. take a nice drive through beautiful roads. Yeah, it's really nice around here. Uh, and the food is great. <laughs> kind of a, You've been kind of a Northeast New York type your whole life. Born in New York, lived there most of my life. And, you know, if you live in New York and work in New York, which is what I did, uh, you need to have some place where you go where you can take a deep breath. Because New York is, I don't have to tell you, it's a sort of a hostile environment. Right. And so uh, this place allows me to survive, you know. As soon as I get out to the country, the long rolling hills and the green, I just relax. And it's great. Right. I enjoy it that way. So did, did you start out in the real estate business or did you do something before that? Actually, I did all I, my my business card, which hopefully you might be amused by when I give you one. It says Harvey Siegel, serial entrepreneur. Oh. Okay. okay. And this was back when you could say entrepreneur and it meant something. Because now it's like a dating profile that means you're unemployed. Yeah. Or, or <laughs> I never thought of like that. A, you had an Instagram account. Yeah. But this was when entrepreneur really meant something. And I did a lot of things, and I learned from the mistakes I made, and I made a few. I think the best lesson I learned a long time ago as a kid, I started a company called Classic Coaches Limited. which was sort of amusing. I bought a lot of old town cars. Okay. Like old. Like Lincoln Town Cars? Yeah, okay. with open cockpit in front, you know, where the driver sat. Oh, the old the, ones. Yes, yeah, yes, like in the 30s. Looking. Yeah. Uh, Rolls Royces and Packards, they were the best, and uh, Lincolns, and those cars were terrific because nobody wanted them, okay. and I could buy them for a thousand dollars, for fifteen hundred, and if they were good runners, maybe I'd have to go for two. <laughs> but you know, really, nobody cared for those because they were the the orphan child of the collector car world. Sure. So I put together about twenty-five of them when the World's Fair was created years ago, and. Uh, I went to all the hotels around and became the, uh, the, the go-to car to get to the World's Fair. Uh-huh. And I had these old cars and people who were staying at the hotel, they'd, uh, they'd book it through uh, our, our little card that we left okay. at the front desk yeah. to get to the fair. Well, you can go by fancy car in a limousine, right. vintage limousine, or you can go by taxi cab. Right, yeah, of course you're gonna go with the cool, okay. yeah. And Richard Nixon was one at the oh, time, right. yeah. Carol uh, Baker, the actress. 
And of course, whenever there was a celebrity, I drove myself. Absolutely. I was a kid, I was 26 years old or 27 years old. So did you come from a family that had some money that you were able to buy these cars? I, I had uh, $10,000 that I had accumulated uh-huh. and I'd started the company with $10,000. Okay. So and over the course of time, you had about 25 cars in your fleet. Yeah. That's impressive. So, you know, and then I, uh, I built up uh, a nice fleet of them uh, for town car work around the city. Uh-huh. And then one day I got a knock on the door and an injunction to stop. <laughs> wow. made it. Yeah. <laughs> No. First lawsuit means you're good. Yeah, okay. yeah. Carry Transportation Corporation uh-huh. uh, did an injunction against me because I was using the city streets, the streets of New York. I said, on what basis mm-hmm. is that illegal? Well, we have a franchise signed by the city that we're the only ones who go to the World's Fair, to the airports, and we don't believe you're allowed to do it. I said, you're allowed to go to the airports. They have nothing to do with the World's Fair. Yeah. And so we went to court and uh, the injunction held. <clears throat> I got a little uh, tap on the shoulder outside after we uh, uh, lost in front of the judge that, uh, you know, you seem like a nice guy, Harvey. Uh, we are seven lawyers employed full time by Cary Transportation Corporation. And the motto is very simple. We don't want acorns to grow into oak trees. Huh. Wow. So I learned very early. Yeah, yeah. You're dealing with the opposite side. It's got a deep pocket, very deep pocket. Right. Be prepared for a war just to slow you up and crush you. So that was a lesson learned in my early 20s. So I knew going forward, Okay, I'll have to be careful. Careful that you grow kind of thing. Yeah. What was the, did you have any background in real estate at all? Well, like I was school? lucky. My dad <clears throat> was involved in uh, uh, the company called National Shoes. That's before your time, believe me. And uh, it was uh, a company that had the shoe department in all the important uh, discount stores. Walmart, Kmart. Mm-hmm. Regrettably, no longer here, but <laughs> we started with Kmart. Sure. And uh, once we had the shoe departments in the stores, then we uh, kind of, the next step was, well, maybe I can speak to the right people through your connection to build one of their stores. Okay. And so I got connected with another young man whose father was friendly with mine, and the two of them put us in the right direction. And that started the whole shopping center business that I built a couple of million square feet of shopping centers over the next 20 years. Okay, right, yeah. So sort of the core of your business success has been sort of the commercial real estate sector and and particularly building shopping centers. I did uh, a couple of small office buildings, but mostly uh, commercial. That was the, you know, shopping centers became my quote, career business. Mm And once I did that, you know, I made enough money at a certain point in time and some somebody suggested I take a, a shot at uh, vintage racing. Bought a couple of cars, too many. <laughs> <laughs> Wife didn't like that many. And I'll give you a quickie on this one. Uh, I, my wife was pregnant with uh, our first child. We were living in a one bedroom in New York 
And uh, I kept buying cars and buying cars. And she, finally she turned to me and said, if you, <laughs> if you buy another car, better have a really big back seat. <laughs> because you're gonna be living in it unless we buy, get a bigger house. Yeah. So I stopped and then I, I bought her a car, uh, which only bought me some time. <laughs> then we had to go on and we, we, we went on from there to a nicer place. So basically every, as you, as you grew in business, your desire to have something for yourself always had to be compromised by something for the family. So it's like one it, for you, one for me. It's, it's, you know, it's just, you have to keep peace. You know, the lady of the house needs, <laughs> needs to be happy. And um, <clears throat> I learned how to do it. Uh, I made a few mistakes and I think the biggest one was taking it to a racetrack when I went back to vintage racing. Mm -hmm. I brought it to Road Atlanta, I'll never forget it. Um, this was the And wife. I told, yeah. yeah. I, I and how told, old were, were your kids, or were some of your kids My kids were, uh, they were, you know, six and eight about okay. then, okay. okay. But a very impressionable agent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't drag them to the track. Oh, okay, just yeah. the wife. I just brought the wife and said how this easy this was and wonderful and safe and nothing right. was gonna happen and life would be terrific. And the first thing that happened on the straightaway, some guy got T-boned, uh, didn't have, a, uh, didn't have a, a fuel cell for reasons I'm not sure why, and he went up in smoke. Of course, he got out and he was okay. Yeah. But from that moment forward, she went back and sat in the car. <laughs> and it was Road Atlanta, so okay. she thought we were going to Atlanta. <laughs> Not ah, right, and the classic racetrack. And, yeah, right, yeah, and yeah, it yeah. was a classic racetrack yeah. back then. Yeah. 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 And so she, there were no creature comforts, no bathrooms, no nothing. And I realized that, well, you know, this is not a place my family's gonna take yeah. kindly to. Right. Which is part of the seed of VIR, mm -hmm. by the yeah. way. Mm -hmm. Even in 2019, that's true. Like, oh, you're going to Toronto. Yeah. No. Well, I'm, going to I'm, going to, I'm going to Bowmanville. Yeah, like, yeah, Bowmanville, yeah. Ontario. Right? Well, so, yeah. so yeah. you know, that day, going to Atlanta, <laughs> it wasn't Buck's Head, it was Bates Motel. You know, uh, that's all right. they had back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. And they hadn't built the chateau yet. Sure. Don uh, Panos had not done that yet. Right. So it was really in the middle of nowhere mm -hmm. and there were no restaurants, only you know, fast food restaurants yeah. and Bates right. motels, <laughs> okay? But so, so early on you're, you're finally able to go out and do some, some fun amateur kind of racing. Um, I did. And, but, and, and you were able to race it sort of the old VIR during that time. No. No, okay. When I was young, right. I did that. When I was- As a fan? No, as a racer. Okay. I, I raced on VIR in the days when it first survived. Right. You know, when it was built. Yeah, so you you got into some real estate business early, yeah. and then, then as a young man, you bought some race cars. Is that correct? I bought the cars. I, I didn't have extra money. Right. I bought the cars that I needed. I bought a car or two yeah. to race. Right. And that's all I could do. And is that when time. you went to VIR? At that point? Yeah, that's okay. when I raced there. So what, I, what I'm getting at is that you bought a race car, but you still lived in a small apartment that needed extra room. <laughs> right. <laughs> a lot of room. It's a real racer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what can I tell you? I don't have to explain that to most racers. No. Okay. So young Harvey, young Harvey Siegel, the racer, uh, before you are the Harvey Siegel that you are now, racing at the old VIR, what, what was it? It was a barren 
uh, farm through which a racetrack ran, and it was a nothing but partying up on, you know, Spectator Hill. Uh, it was more or less, you know, it was a party and a race broke out, really, and there were no safety anything. <laughs> there was nothing safety. If you lo lost control, you went through the, through the fields right. and you'd have, right. you know, corn hitting right. you in the head. Right. And <laughs> in those days, like places like Raleigh or Greensboro, had they built up by that no, point? So no, it was Southern just, Virginia, I had to assume, was just really in the middle of nowhere. It was nothing yeah. there, right. yeah. nothing there. But truly, they did have roads and they did have infrastructure and there were buildings and there was telephone and you know some wells were drug and you know there was a latrine not a right. outhouse even yeah. it was very military okay. bare bones yeah. yeah i'd heard that there were no the the restroom was basically there was a barn that everybody would go to and there was some a outhouse trough. there was a trough right. okay right. excellent and we ultimately had to do something about that to say the least yeah for sure I, I don't think that people know the history of VIR as a party track because now it's so well run and maintained that it just seems like a proper racetrack. Just so that you know, in the 70s when, uh, when they finally shut it down, it was you know, opened in 57 and when they, they shut it down for good reason, the, the party got so wild uh, and a lot of people used to come up to us and say, well, I conceived my firstborn child on the on Spectator Hill. I mean, really, that's the kind of comments that we got. Yeah. Uh, but that the party was wild, and they got so wild that they burned the barn down. What? That's right. That's why. That's when the owners finally said, "That's it. We're done." Oh, wow. Okay. okay. So it it wasn't necessarily that it wasn't profitable. I mean, sure, over time it declined, but it was really just too much hassle. It was it was too much hassle and. The, the, the young people who were going there, you know, were so, so rowdy that there was no discipline. And, yeah. and you know, I remember same thing was true at Watkins Glen, where they, yeah. Yeah. they turned over the cars and they did all kinds of goofy things. Yeah. Yeah. They got too much drink in them and they got too rowdy and the party went too far. Because in, in 2019, like the only real party people talk about today is Sebring, at least in the U.S. Yeah, or yeah, maybe Talladega. Yeah, Sebring is Sebring is, but they've learned how to deal with it there. Right, mm -hmm. and in uh, Virginia, the south side of Virginia, there was nothing much going on. You could make all the noise you wanted, and God forbid something really bad happened. I don't even know who would you call. Right, right. Know, Ghostbusters. <laughs> even now, that racetrack is pretty much in the middle of nowhere. There's not a whole lot around. Danville as a town isn't massive, but there's no like big sports venue or concert hall nearby. So if you backtrack all the way to when we're talking, there's nothing at all to do. It's true. So this is kind of where I imagine a lot of these kids went to play and have fun and also maybe see a race car go by. And it was different times, you know, the options you had were less. And sports cars, racing cars, was a really important option mm -hmm. because you didn't have 20 other things, concerts to go to, uh, right. events, you know, it was a happening kind of thing. It was the cutting edge. Right, right. And, you know, you had guys like Shelby and Hanskin and Constantine and, you know, coming to the track, Roger Penske was there too. There's a big photograph, yeah. which you've probably seen, seen down there. Yes. And 
those guys showed up. Uh, Jim Hall, I mean, they all were there. They came because it was a sanctioned uh, event that they could show off their skill set, and they loved it. Right. I mean, I think uh, Shelby said one lap at VIR is like a hundred at another <laughs> racetrack. Right. Yeah. So it was work. It meant something to go there and do well. Yes. If yeah. you if you could turn a good lap at VIR, mm -hmm. you know you were you you were good. Yeah. You, 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 there was very little room for you know brain fade down yeah, there, right. because one of the things you should know <clears throat> in the old VIR at the end of the blacktop there was a little drainage dish, which if you got off the blacktop, you were definitely gonna take a little ride okay. uh, yeah. in a different direction. <laughs> so you had to make sure you stayed on the blacktop. Right, but at the time they didn't know about track drainage, so that was probably the that most- That was awesome. the only, yeah. that's all they knew. <laughs> what was more dangerous, the racing or the partying? It's a tie. <laughs> <laughs> So for uh, sort of the New York, New England car scene, what were, in the 50s and 60s and early 70s, what were the racetrack options at the time? You had places like Bridgehampton and Meadowlands. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, Meadowlands didn't exist. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, Bridgehampton, Vineland, uh, Thompson, uh, Marlboro, I knew them all. I saw them all. Right, right. Uh, and that's really one of the inspirations of why I ended up looking at all of them because uh, I was racing after 89 with SVRA mm -hmm. and we were getting shut out of the regular tracks because the other um, sanctioning bodies were consuming the weekends. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, with the noise about, well, we need a place where we can go and sort of a home, mm -hmm. Uh, so I started to look at all the racetracks. I took a ride around, so I looked at Marlboro. It was, uh, it had grown over and was no longer a, uh, a potential. Just wouldn't be able to bring it back. No, it had, it was a swamp by then. Okay. And with wetlands management, oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a real estate developer so first. So you know about things like that. I, I knew that don't, eat, don't waste your time. And the only, I looked at Thompson, uh, that had been chopped up quite a lot, so it really was in different ownership. Mm -hmm. And of course I was always uh, fond of Vineland because it was so close, mm -hmm. and I kind of cut my eye teeth there, racing with Jay Signori and, and Mark Donahue in the old days with Heard my Elva Courier. Yeah. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, that was a funny story, actually. I went back to look at the track, but. The track had been half sold to a university and it was no longer re restorable. Yeah. Uh, I had a warm spot in my heart for that one uh, because of the history of the, where I learned how right. to drive fast and where I learned that I don't drive that fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what happened over the course of the 60s and 70s to all the racetracks that were around this area? So what, what I'm looking for is like, Bridgehampton turned into a swamp, or Marlboro turned into a swamp, Bridgehampton, Bridgehampton turned into a shopping center. Like, what happened to every place and why? Well, Bridgehampton was, for your edification, yeah. the best candidate on my radar screen other than VIR, because it was close to my home. Yeah. It was a two and a half hour ride. I could get to the planning board. 
do the planning myself and get home and sleep in my own bed. Mm -hmm. yeah. Any place else I would have to do, I'd fly to, okay? Uh, sure. So it had, for me, the best personal interests and I thought because of its proximity to so many people, we'd have the best constituency yeah. mm -hmm. available to yeah. us there. However, in analyzing it, you know, you have multi-million dollar homes. They don't want the noise. Mm -hmm. They don't want the traffic. Uh, and they can afford to stop you. And I learned the lesson years ago. That famous lesson I gave right. you before. That don't yeah. want acorns if, if they see somebody who's gonna change their peace and quiet on their porch or their poolside, yeah. they have the pocket deep enough to stop me or block me or delay me in such a way that it'll be no longer a viable option. Mm -hmm. So I passed. That's how it came about. In general, why did all these tracks go away? It's like, ah. so yeah, so Marlboro turned into a swamp, but it didn't, it didn't just, wasn't a racetrack in a swamp the next they, day. They closed, uh, most of them closed as a result of the 70s when the gas crisis came in. The gas crisis said, not only do you not have gas for your race car, you don't have gas for the car and the rig that it takes you to get to the race. So the shift was dramatic, the shift was uh, for a multiple period of years, mm -hmm. probably two years. And if you have no income at a facility that's already barely above water for two years, nobody coming there, nobody racing there, right. you're done. Yeah. So it was literally the physical limitation of gas, not so much a cultural change because of the gas crisis. No, the, the gas crisis closed probably all those tracks with the exception of Bridgehampton, because there was enough people close by who still wanted to be involved, mm -hmm. and that survived a little longer, but not so long. Once it was in different hands, they wanted to resurrect it, and then everybody carried on about, you know, it's ruining the environment. Environment has a huge effect on it. But that would, I'd say, I'd attribute the demise of all the traditional tracks was the gas crisis. I don't know when Riverside went away. I certainly went back to look at Riverside. Of course I went back to Riverside. <laughs> I mean, I went back to Riverside, and for me, that was, you know, the most iconic place of all. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was, it, its history would have been, I don't know, un, unduplicatable. I mean, it's uh, once in a lifetime. Yeah. But it was a, you know what it is, it's sort of a combination of shopping centers and homes now, right. it's gone. But I went back and looked, <laughs> disappointed. So in, in 2019, we're not in a gas crisis per se, but there's a cultural attitude towards petroleum that has shifted. So people are much more fuel conscious and things like that today, which is hurting the, the motorsport culture. But in the mid 70s, it wasn't so much a general opinion to be more sort of eco-friendly as much as literally people couldn't have gas. You so have to wait on to if you had to wait online to get gas in your car to drive to the racetrack, you're not going. If you had to wait online to get gas into your tow truck and be unable to get gas for your race car, which was considered frivolous when everybody was trying to just get to their job, culturally, mentally, financially, it pretty much was the death knell for the, the motorsport world, in this country at least. Others survived, 
some tracks we, you know, survived. We didn't. At what point do you, Harvey Siegel, real estate developer, businessman, start thinking, you know what, I wouldn't mind seeing a new racetrack pop up around here? I didn't say it that way. Okay. I didn't even think it that way. Okay. Actually, I was inspired by um, my trips to the uh, ski resorts. I went to Deer Valley, went to Snowmass, Aspen, and those places. And I noticed with very, you know, high curiosity why those places were special. I had a racer in the summertime and a skier in the wintertime. And Deer Valley was probably the inspiration for me when I guess Stein Erickson and Roger Penske put together uh, some really nice Deer Valley facilities, one of which was um, nuances that other people don't even think about. As you stand with your nose running at the, uh, uh, at the uh, lift lines, you know, you've got Kleenex boxes that you can run your Kleenex, right? right. You get to the end of the day and you're exhausted, you don't have to schlep your skis home, you check them at the base and you get there the next morning and you clip them on and the lift is right there and you go up. When you go for food, you have real food, mm -hmm. okay? These are the things that seem to be so important to the people who participate that I said to myself one day, you know, our racetracks are awful, they are. There's no toilets, there's no, there's no good food, there's crap everywhere when it comes to your eating opportunity. So would it be nice, since my wife didn't like my racing, if we went to a place that was part country club, part resort, and oh yeah, we're also gonna race. <laughs> Just absolutely elevate the customer experience yeah. to what it should be. Make it just as good as a ski resort, but treat it with the same, you know, nuances that I think as a racer, I would want my family to enjoy and what I would like to have. Example is the covered false grid. The covered false grid by itself, there's no other place in America or anywhere else I know that has a false grid. I actually never thought about that. But that is a... Uh, yeah, literally, I've never thought about that, but that's 100% That is absolutely correct. Yeah. And the false grid came from very simple reality. Who likes to sit cooking in the sun in your race car when they're lining up for the next group and you sit there? I'm blown away that I did yeah. not realize How this. How many decades have we been doing this? Never thought about that. And you pull onto the false grid into the slot that yep. you've been assigned. You sit there in the shade. If it's raining, you're dry and God forbid your car doesn't start. If you take a look at the nuances and the subtleties, you just go down, pop second gear, and you are off and running. You'll never have to deal with a, you know, uh, overheated car or a, a, a bulky car. Just give it a push, I'll take it from there. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't think about this. <laughs> that's incredible. But if you think about that, that's the most uncomfortable time of your experience is being in that false grid when you're cooking and they got somebody who might hold an umbrella over you if you're in an open car. Uh, the second thing was bathrooms. Mm -hmm. They're terrible. And I want to be able to take a shower. So we made sure the showers 
and I don't want to be sticky, they're air conditioned. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you're staying at the track for a period of time afterwards, yeah. you know, it's nice to be cleaned up. Yeah. Huh. And the garages, I'm sure you know yep. about that. Yep. We have garages. I've stayed in the condos above the garages as well, which is unique to mm -hmm. VIR. It's, uh, they have that in Europe quite a bit. And there's, is there, New Jersey has it, obviously, but that's your place. So yeah, that's because where do you think it came from? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, is there any other racetracks in North America that have the... I think there's a place called, out in the desert. Excuse me, thermal. that thermal, yeah. Yeah, but that's not a pro track. No. So no. VIR being one of the few places you can go and actually stay at the track, which... Well, you could stay there or the hotel. Right. Uh, or rent a villa. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of ways to make it nice. Yeah. So story. lots of the tracks that are local have gone away and as, as you finally were able to build or to make homes big enough that you could fit your family into, it's time to go racing again. Yes. Okay. So at what point do you decide, okay, I, it, I'm not seeing it the way I want it to be. I want to do this. In 89, I started uh, vintage racing again. Yeah. From 89 onward, up until the last few years, I stopped at age 80, I guess. I figured it was okay to stop. <laughs> sure. I wanted to have a more upscale experience for not only my family, which is really what inspired me to take it to the next step. After the Road Atlanta experience, I said, oh my God, I'll never get it back to a racetrack again. Right. Okay. But I said, how about, would you go to a racetrack if it was more like a country club than it was like a racetrack? And she said, well, I try it. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, I said, okay, well, cause I'm think about them getting another real estate transaction going forward. It's a business move. It's yeah, purely it's business. Gotta, it's work. Right. Now, t okay. Late eighties for a kind of a wealthy club racer, somebody just looking to have fun that, that's in the New York financial scene or New York real estate scene. What are your options to go racing in, in the late eighties? Um, well, you did have Mid-Ohio. Which uh, is a day and a half away. Yes, a day and a half away. Not you nice. had uh, you had Watkins Glen that was in the hands of not NASCAR at the time. Right. Uh, it still was there and an awesome track indeed. Right. Um, it's in the hands of NASCAR now, but it wasn't then. Sure. And that's really a pretty cool track by any right. measure. Uh, you had... Um, Lime Rock, of course, a small but precious local track for my perspective is, it was Paul Newman's home track. It was right. certainly familiar to me. I mean, if you lived in the Northeast and didn't know what your time was on, <laughs> on Lime Rock, then you probably have dementia and you'd right. probably be sent off to a home somewhere. <laughs> um, and. Uh, Mid-Ohio, that was all right. it was. Watkins Glen, Lime Rock, especially 30 years ago, they weren't conducive to a wealthy business guy that, that could really bring his family out and, and, and make it an experience. There was no place you could take your family unless they were into camping that would be you know, comfortable enough for them to want to come back. And so the criteria is, do you want to do this again some other place or is this the last time? Right. And so I, I really looked at it with the eye to making it user-friendly, 
family friendly and try to let the woman not be turned off by the fact that the guy is going racing. Turns out there's some racial ladies that are in it now, but back then it was mostly guys. Harvey Siegel, the greatest real estate developer in New York that we know, <laughs> um, decides I, I have to just do this myself because there's nobody else who can really fill this void. Well, it came about by the fact that uh, SVRA, with whom I'd been racing, uh, vintage racing, were losing their venues and couldn't find a good slot. And I'm trying to remember the name of the fellow who owned it at the time. And he was bemoaning the fact that we're losing <clears throat> dates at Mid-Ohio and dates at Watkins Glen to the professionals or Porsche group or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And it was getting more difficult to find a spot. So I said, well, maybe I'll look at the old racetracks and see what they look like now. And that's when I took my road trip and I went to all of them. So you drove to all these different locations? Yeah. How much time did you allow for? As much as it took. Okay, so you were like, I'm doing this. this. Yeah, I'm gonna do it. And, you know, I went to see each one of them. Took a day, if it were within a day, like I drove to Thompson, Connecticut, and I drove to Lime Rock, which was already there. Obviously, Watkins Glen was still alive and well, but Marlboro, Maryland was not. I drove there and back. Vineland, there and back. Mm -hmm. And there's no driving to BIR and back <laughs> on the same day. And so I was trying to get as close as I could to New York as possible. Right. Okay. But it didn't turn out to be there was anything that I could do. BIR was an interesting experience. When I went back to see it, Ray Heppenstall, that's the name that might come to pass, said, why don't you go look at VIR? It's still there. I said, gosh, it's, you know, it's 10 hours away, nine hours away, whatever. All right, I'll do it. So uh, I drove down to VIR and uh, I looked at it with the owner because I tracked down the owner and I said, show me around, please, if you would. Do you say I'm interested in redoing the track or anything like that? Or do you say, I'm just an old racer that wants to see it again? I said, I'm an old racer, I'd like to see it again. And whether or not I have an interest in it will be whether or not I feel right about it. Could you show me? He said, sure. You know, a lot of guys like you come back every so often. I said, I'm gonna come a long way and I'd like you to show it to me with yourself, if you would. He said, yes. So I drive down there. It's a long drive for me. <clears throat> and I met this young man whose parents had owned it. Okay. He was a 50% owner. And the other fellow from the other side was uh, the other 50%. And I got to meet all of the people afterwards, but the first time I went to see VIR. Do you want to hear how that went? Yeah, yeah. No. Eh. Okay. Please, uh, please. <laughs> well, it's memorable for me for a lot of reasons. Uh, he showed me the road, which had been a road. It was now all red clay. Mm -hmm. 
the clay did not exist anymore. Uh, in other words, the road was gone. Right. The road was gone, and all there was was a clay, you know, bed with ruts all over it. And <clears throat> when we drove there, the, the cows were at the top of the hill. And when we came in through the oak tree corner, the oak tree was still there, of course. It yeah. was there for 300 years. And uh, we, we walked up. We didn't drive. It was not drivable. Sure. Okay, we walked up to the top of the hill. And there were cows uh, in the center of the, where the old cragginess of the track was. And I looked out over the rolling hills where the cows were grazing. Mm -hmm. The track looked like alligators because the this grass was growing out of every possible crack you could see. And I looked out and I said, well, it's okay, it's pretty tough, you know, there's nothing here. He said, well, you know, it's been sitting here vacant for 25 years. Okay, well, it's pretty rough, but I still have an interest anyhow. So we sat down and we just talked about it. And they said, well, you know, you're the eighth person that's come by and said that they want to do something with it. I said, well, I think I have the right package. I have the time, I have the money, and I have the will. What do you think? He said, well, let me talk to my partners. Brings me over to them. Oh, okay. They live in Milton, yep. North Carolina. I mean, this is in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, right, yes. right. Okay. <laughs> and so we sat down at the, at the kitchen table and we talked about it. And eventually we made a deal. I said, okay, but I don't want to own a farm, which is what it was, mm -hmm. in Southside Virginia without knowing I can use it. Right. for what I want. And that started the saga. Ah. Well, after a, a lot of uh, back and forth, and uh, the day on which I was to sign the agreement, the contract was sitting there, and I went to Trenton for the only direct flight to Greensboro. And it was canceled. Huh. Okay. And so I was stuck. How do I get down to sign the agreement where I don't have a flight and I ran from the commercial side, do you have a charter company? Right. Uh, what we do, we have a 22-passenger uh, turboprop, mm -hmm. um, and it'll cost you blank dollars to go to uh, the Danville Airport. Okay. I didn't know it didn't have a bathroom on board. <laughs> N 
didn't occur to me. I mean, a plane has a a 22 passenger doesn't have a head on board. Right. It didn't. So I just drank a lot of. (laughs) (laughs) But I brought I brought a a Snapple with me thinking that was uh, something that I was going to need on the way. And eventually, without the details, uh, halfway down there, after spending a lot of money for this aircraft to get down, I had to pour it out. <laughs> I'm not sure where it went. <laughs> and use it. What flavor was the Snapple? The snap. Well, the Snapple went out. Right. And right. I, just, I filled it up, and then I t- the documentation. Uh, what flavor do you think the Snapple was? I'm not sure, but like Snapple. Lemon light, lemonade, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so I got down there, and we signed it up. Okay. And it was a drama for me because. Uh, I didn't expect to be able to do it at all because, I, you know, I was thwarted. Mm-hmm. Why would I take a 22-passenger right. commuter, you know, aircraft down? Because it was the only thing that would get me there. Sure. Had I missed it, I know it would be gone. It wouldn't be gone from me, but they would have thought I was just... Yeah, you weren't serious yeah. and it wasn't worth their time, maybe. And because I had them all teed up to sign the papers mm-hmm. and everything. If I didn't show yeah. on that day, the IR probably would still be the way it was when I found it. Because you'd not have called? It wouldn't have mattered. If I wasn't going to show, yeah. that was going to be the game. Interesting. You know, they probably thought I was just, you know, blowing smoke mm-hmm. at them. Mm-hmm. The property was only being grazed. Okay. And all along the track was the old outline of the blacktop still there, but there was no water, no sewer, no telephone, no buildings, no roads. There was nothing to it. And it had all been overgrown. The, the bridge had fallen down. So there was nothing there. The bridge over the short street for the S's? Yeah. Yeah. And so I looking at it, you know, it was either a dream or a nightmare. I couldn't tell you at the time. <laughs> and in hindsight, I will tell you, it's, um, it's likely that I was an optimist and a real estate developer mm-hmm. because if, if you had asked me, after I did it, would I have done it? The answer is no. <laughs> because it was way more right. complicated, way more mm-hmm. expensive, and way more time-consuming than anything imaginable. So was the pavement grown over or just gone? It was grown over, and the grass was coming out okay. everywhere. But the old outline mm-hmm. was there. Yeah, there's a there's a video we saw from 1998. I think it's you and Connie driving around, and like it. I mean, the path was still there. It wasn't like you had to recreate how it. I laid wouldn't out. do that. Okay. It's exactly the center line is exactly the way it was. Yeah. I will tell you some nuances on that. that sure. Racers will want to know. Okay. Um, but just to go back on something that yeah. I now remembered. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Please that one of the nice things about it, this fellow was kind of trying to sell me um, how nice it was going to be. And 
I should do it. Is this the uh, owner? Yeah. Yeah. And I looked out and I said, you know, it's pretty rough. Pretty rough. And inside I'm thinking, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> what a beautiful property. Mm -hmm. I can't believe I'm looking at this. Wow. That was under my breath. Mm -hmm. I'm right. thinking to myself. I said, I think I can work with it. So how did you know it was salvageable though? Like, so in your mind, you're like, oh, I can I'm work with this. I'm a real estate thing. developer. Sean. I, look, I, but that's, <laughs> like, I've, I've known you for like 10 minutes, so I feel like I'm an expert now. But just for our audience, tell me, what were some of the, what were the, some of the signs that this was still a salvageable property? Because I was a real estate developer for mo all of my life, right. most of my life, let's put it that way, <clears throat> this was not the first property where I didn't have sewer, water, roads, telephone. Mm -hmm. Most properties today did at the time I did that. Mm -hmm. But because I was in it for so long, I went to places that we didn't have anything. Right. But we'd bring the sewer or figure out a way to go or mm -hmm. do septic and we, we'd figure it out. And that was the problem solving part of being a real estate developer. A guy who comes in and wants to buy a property ready to go this was not, this was not right. for you, yeah. okay? There's nothing there. But because it was a challenge and I was ready for it, I had kind of like enough of my regular world settled. Doing this was an opportunity, but you're gonna like what happened next. This is amazing. So I go back to New York, mm -hmm. call up, uh, uh, Connie, who was looking to come to work in New York on my shopping centers. I said, Connie, I want to hire you because my long-term employee was going to retire, Peggy Burke. She was going to retire. She was going to replace Peggy. And what happened is that Connie was a native of Martinsville. Okay. That's where she lived. Not That's too far where, away. Very close okay. by. Her father was a developer in the area. He had contacts with local banks and people. And so I had kind of a person familiar with the general Southern mentality, local connections that won't make her stand out like a sore thumb, like a Jewish boy from New York City. <laughs> and so, I made an arrangement for her to come down and be the worker bee. She was on a salary. I said, if it goes forward, I'll give you a little fraction of the action because I believe in that. And Did you use that exact term? Yeah. A little taste of the action? Fraction of the action. Fraction of the action. That is some New York stuff. I love right it. There. Yeah. I had to get that. Yeah, but that's what it is. You're, the best way, <laughs> Duh, Ryan. if you don't have skin in the game, it's you don't have the same yeah, you're not going to love yeah. it as much. You're not going to hope for it. It's got to be, you've got to be, it's got to be part of your, yeah. your being, right? And she was a great, she was a broker in New York, so she had some good, she was a quick study too. Connie mm -hmm. was very smart. Uh, she graduated, you know, at the top of her class. She was just a very good, malleable, quick learner, ready to find a new, exciting, did like she it. have an accent? She did not. Could she turn it on if she's talking oh, to local course. politicians? And so could I. 
Mm-hmm. What, what, you? You could do like I, a Southern Virginia accent, the, I the can Jewish New York real estate developer. Absolutely. I went to college at Tulane University. I'm gonna have to hear it. Yeah. Let's and I, I spent not only the first four years of, of uh, my college there, but I spent several years after while I was a very young man down in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So I, I understand. In fact, that's I, yeah, that was it, right. <laughs> he just said understand a lot. Mm-hmm. I understand. I understand. And when I... New Orleans. So, yeah, New Orleans. I do, I do understand. <laughs> what was your very first interaction with Connie? Like, you were going to hire her? Well, first she was going to come in, take over, and become uh, my second-in-command in, in my real estate office in New York. How did that come to be? Uh, part of the deal when you work for me mm-hmm. and you want to leave, you can leave, but you have to find an appropriate substitute for you yeah. and all of your conduct. You need to have a, a super candidate, otherwise you can't leave. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. And That's so my employment karma. And so she was a recommendation of somebody that was leaving, and yes. if that's the case, they must be pretty good based on your standard. Yes. Okay. And she was all that, and probably more. Okay. Perfect soundbite. Yeah. So now you've got her going down, running VIR. No. Oh, no, 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 no. Let's go back a step. Well, you mentioned the Martinsville thing. I thought we were at that okay. point. Okay. Let's go back a step. So, um, so the real your your real business success has been a lot of shopping centers, and. Growing up in California, I know that a lot of times that can be an unwelcome experience for real estate developers. So I assume translating that to a racetrack, there had to be some similarities and experience that you could draw from. I assumed when I was going down to the planning board in the little town of uh, Alton, Virginia, Mm -hmm. that the planning board would probably want to lynch me. Or if they couldn't lynch me legally, they would run me out of town. But that's, I expect that as a real estate developer, it's what I always expect to happen. And so I usually try to make something a little lighter before making a presentation to try to at least soften the blow that will likely come next. And this was an area that really didn't have much going on. This was something that brought people to the area in the past, so I figured I could play on that. And the fact that it would bring some jobs, we'd have a couple hundred people working there. Um, We'd certainly have some construction work and some, there'd be some serious money, you know, flowing through the local economy. And the hotels would do better, and the restaurants would do better, and all that usual stuff that happens surrounding a racetrack. Mm-hmm. So that was that was the concept that I had when going in. Connie, having been a local gal, brought up in the area, uh, was familiar and comfortable down there, and had a lot of friends with whom she could counsel, and. So I said, well, you come down and you'll work for me. And if we get this deal done, instead of doing our real estate and shopping centers, I'm gonna try to do this if they let me. I don't know if they will. So I called up and said, may I get on your schedule for your agenda 
to discuss uh, a project that I would like to you to consider in your town. He said, sure, that's fine, what is it? And it's a VIR uh, resurrection. I said, fine, come in. So Connie and I, I said, well, come there. I want to have a woman to help me, you know, soften the blow of a Jewish boy from New York. Yeah, right. Uh, to come down in front of the board. And I, I was hopeful that we would just sit there and get the first step going. Yeah. And I was called, you know, on, after uh, there were very few people there. The, mm -hmm. You know, somebody's building a uh, garage or somebody's doing something else, all the various things that happen at a planning board. And it was a township committee. You don't go to a planning board, there's a township committee. And it was on the agenda. They said, uh, Mr. Siegel, would you be interested? Come up. I said, yes. I said, My name is Harvey Siegel. Um, I live in New York. Uh, and that's where it's been my home for all my life. But it's okay, I went to college in Tulane University, so I do have some questionable southern roots. I got a little chuckle across the board, mm -hmm. and that broke the ice. Right, right, right. Okay. Always, yeah. Okay. And I'm here today to request uh, the process by which uh, I could be considered to be the candidate to resurrect the Virginia International Raceway. Uh, I have an agreement with the family. Uh, it's signed, but it's subject to uh, all the appropriate uh, consents that I might need. And the chairman, very nice old southern gentleman, he said, well, Mr. Siegel, you're the eighth man to come down in front of this board. Uh, to tell us they're going to do that. I want you to know that, sir. I said, I understand that. And I realize that others may have suggested that they were going to do it, but I believe that I have the, uh, the financial ability, uh, the vision, and the capability to do it, and the time. Well, uh, what did you have in mind? And then I said, well, I basically want to resurrect it to become uh, not only a racetrack, but something more that I believe would be well suited for the area and would attract outside people, jobs. Well, Mr. Siegel, let, let, let me take a few moments with the board. So they all file out mm -hmm. and they go into some small room to the other side. I'm sitting down with Connie and uh, we're waiting there, about uh, 10 minutes goes past, and they come out and they file back into their little seats. And it was, you know, I'm just wondering exactly what they're gonna say or what they're gonna do. Sure. Didn't know what to expect. And uh, Mr. Siegel, uh, stand up. Connie stands up. Well, we've talked about it. Man, we have uh, uh, decided that we're going to let you do that. Oh, okay. Uh, thank you, sir. <laughs> and I sit down. I turn to Connie and I say,
what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so we walk out, you know, when you've made the sale, there's an old expression, if you're a salesman, you close the book and you walk away. Right, <laughs> right. So we said thank you and we left the room. So outside, of course, Connie and I are looking at each other and saying, I'm not sure what, I've been in, I've been a real estate developer for 50 years. I've never heard of anybody saying something that to me. And I did excuse myself for being a Jewish boy from New York. <laughs> that they chuckled on that one too. But I have redeeming qualities. I went to Tulane. <laughs> so um, I asked what, what that meant, and she didn't know any more than I did. So what we did is there was a fellow by the name of Jerry Lovelace, who uh, was the, uh, the town planner. And he was also a car guy, which was good. So the next day I called up Jerry Lovelace, with whom I had previously met to make sure I had the right uh, lots and identified myself to be on the agenda. And he, I said, Jerry, explain to me what it is that I, I, I got last night, if anything. He said, you got the go ahead to do it. I, I said, I know that's what they said, but what does that mean? Right. It means as long as your buildings have a, a stamp of an architect so that they don't fall down, you can go do what you have to do. Wow. <laughs> a real estate developer for 50 years can do everything and anything he wants with a blank piece of paper, it's own, nobody telling him what to do, where to site the buildings. Right how to lay them out, where the roads go, where the utilities go. What I want to do, I can do. Virtually no oversight, no environmental, no traffic report, no noise attenuation, no nothing, no working drawings before you even start, no drainage calculations, nothing. And so I started on one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And it was absolutely the most rewarding imaginable to be able to do as a real estate developer something that you loved and were passionate about and do it exactly as you see it should be done with nobody giving you second quests, no questions. Right. You do it your way and I anguished it. Every building I sighted, I made sure every one of the four corners were plugged in. As, as we drove down the famous open three, three, uh, three wide the, the road, road coming yeah. in, I wanted to make sure that when you finally saw the building, how you saw it, what you felt, when you saw it, so that as you came upon it, you got wowed. And wow was the, that was the goal. I want to wow you. I want to make sure that when you drive into this place, you come in and you say, wow. And they've got it. That's what it was. And uh, 
it was important to have that freedom because there was no way it would look like it did. As it ultimately looked, there'd be no way you could have that look without them getting out of my way. And I, without trying to be arrogant, I wanted to have that opportunity. And they gave it to me. And I didn't disappoint them. And we, anytime we went back for something, we got it. Hmm. Mr. Siegel, you, you're doing a real good job out there. I said, thank you, sir. I'd like to get this. Well, that sounds all right to us. <laughs> and so we got everything we wanted when we wanted it. Connie was spectacular. She helped me. She did the she did the stuff that needed to be done, and she did it wisely. I don't recall, but one incident that we uh, we had a disagreement as to whether or not we should go forward to do something. Actually, twice. And they were both, <coughs> in hindsight, best we didn't do them. <laughs> I mean, you have to imagine a lifetime developer have the opportunity to do everything. So that's not the norm, right? So that, that is so radical, right. so <laughs> completely opposite. So we're eating in a really, really nice part of New Jersey right now. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to develop something here and you got the go-ahead <laughs> from the from city, that wouldn't really mean anything other than you can start thinking about it, How but you're going to have to go through 17 layers of approval on every aspect of this building. You would need environmental impact statement. Right. You'd need a traffic study and all the implications of it. You'd need consent from the DOT. You'd need uh, a, uh, a phase one and probably phase two of all the environmental prior to you. Right. You would need um, drainage calculations, full working drawings before you even decide. Mm -hmm. right. Even if you got to the workshop session, you would be hundreds of thousands out before you even took title to the property. Yeah, right. Um, in car racing, if you're given a rule book to build your car to, in a way it's easier because you can identify exactly where the strengths and weaknesses in the rule book are. But if you're given an open canvas to just sort of build a car, in a way it's almost scarier because it's on you to figure out how to make it work because you're not restricted at all. There's no one but you to blame if it's not great. I like this, that. Yeah. I like that concept. Here I am, the opportunity to build BIR, and I'm the only one who's got his hands on the wheel. Yeah. I don't have anybody second guessing me. If I make a mistake, it's mine. And so I went about it. It was a labor of love. Right. And we sighted every building. We anguished its angle, even the timing tower, you'll notice the next time you're there, <laughs> that it's a slight angle where you have a slight skew, even though I like geometry, mm -hmm. it had to be a skew so that the timers back then could see the cars coming down to oh, put their yeah. right. little things cars. like that. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't want multiple buildings. Let's have one building that does 10 things. Right. That's what we do with yeah. the big... You know, it's got bathrooms and pro shop and food and uh, bath. Um, the medics are in there? Yeah, we got medics in there. We got, uh, uh, you know, upstairs you have... Race control um, yeah. and timing and scoring, yeah. Food, yeah. And the driver's meeting, you know, yeah, you yeah. could open the doors and yep. double the size of your... Right. A lot of little nuances like that. 
What did you wear to the first, what did you wear to the meeting that you went down to ask for permission to build the track? I didn't go in a suit. That's what I wanted to know. No, I, I know better than that. Uh, because that would be the New York money thing to do. Yeah, yeah. it's another yeah. cheap suit I, from New York. No, yeah. another expensive suit from New York. <laughs> I went the way I saw the people dressing. I had a white shirt on, but no tie, open, and some slacks, and I, I looked presentable. I wasn't in, you know, shorts and a, and a t-shirt. You know, I yeah. tried to be respectful because I am, and I don't think it was sit well if you weren't. So I've learned a few things from you here today. Uh, as business goes, if I want to get in real estate, if I ever come across something that looks really good, I should not let the person selling it to me know that. <laughs> of course not. Dress the part. Yeah. For the Dress to the temperature of the room, basically. Right. Okay. And then uh, put good people around you. Get good people and break a laugh to start it off. Okay. Yeah, you said lighten the blow. That was the other one, lighten yeah. the blow. Okay. So it, it sounds like your biggest resistance wasn't some money guy wants to develop a project. It was that seven people had come before you and just disappeared. Yeah, they, they promised to do it and they never did. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I have the money to do it. I have the will to do it, the time to do it. And I think I can do it well. Do you think that you had raced there previously, had any sort of helping hand? Doubtful. I didn't bring it up because I oh. didn't think that that would be because it was a party time. Remember, they may have some bad. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I thought of the possible implications that they may draw if, in fact, they thought that was going to open up into a a hell's party. Yeah. While <laughs> again, although there's a lot of people, there were a lot of people who really love the history of VIR because it was so important to their youth. Right. And so many people, young people, right. went there, got married, you know, and had lives and returned and said, oh, it's hallowed ground. Right, uh, right. right. Some of it was the cause of their youth, so. Yeah. yeah. So you didn't just start the project and have people go off and run it. You literally sat there and looked at every building with every the building. thought of what it could do and what it should have. I'm embarrassed to tell you, I designed every building. <laughs> I designed the building, its shape, square footage. I, I kind of did it much like our place around here. If you had come to my farm, you would said, oh, I know how the oh. IR was created. Okay. I wanted to match the rolling hills of the Virginia countryside. So I put New England style buildings to create a total theme that was appropriate for the area. And that's why it looks like it does. You know, it's, uh, it was my aesthetic and I'm embarrassed to tell you that I was gonna do it my way <laughs> or the highway, that's it. And so I, I enjoyed it. It was like having uh, your cake and eat it too. Right, yeah, <laughs> perfect scenario. How long did it take from that meeting in Alton, Virginia, to uh, opening the doors? Well, uh, because Connie was local, I said, Connie, do you know somebody who has a good banking relationship uh, that I can talk to? He said, well, my dad does. I said, okay, you're starting to get valuable, lady. <laughs> uh, let's talk to him. So I spoke to her dad, who was a wonderful man.
and uh, we got along very well. I, I called uh, I called Connie in front of him. I said, Connie's the spark plug. Right. Yeah, she is the spark plug, and uh, she's a great fast learner. And I guess her dad always wanted a son, but he had a son and a daughter in one person. Yeah. You know, he he has all the things that it, you'd want your boy to do, but it's she's got the gal, and she's doing it also. Okay, just shows you, ladies yeah. can do pretty much anything oh, we yeah, can we do. Can. Yeah. Anyhow, so uh, I met with his banker, um, who he introduced me to, and we sat in front of him, and I'll never forget the day, his name was Worth Carter. Okay. Carter Bank and Trust. And they were the lenders of choice to, the, uh, to Connie's family, and um, I sat down in front of this nice gentleman and I said, Mr. Carter, I, uh, I have this project and uh, I want to do it here. It's, uh, it's well conceived, um, well planned, and I need uh, X number of millions of dollars to do it. And um, I would like you to consider it. Uh, this is what it is. It's a, it's, it's a golf course and then we have a um, uh, villas on this side, and we have a plantation here uh, with a swimming pool, uh, and then we have uh, a hotel here. And the future will have uh, uh, will have uh, a motel along here, uh, so that you'll be able to look out at the golf course. And I need X millions of dollars. Oh. Um, Mr. Siegel, we're allowed to do that thing. So, uh, do you have any collateral, sir? I said, well, I have a statement, uh, and I'd like you to consider it, knowing full well that it was going to have to be on the paper. There's no way I get this done without being on the paper. It would be a first to be on the paper, be on the so guarantee. We know what it means. <clears throat> okay. But for our audience, what does on the paper mean? It means you're going to guarantee that the money you borrow, you're going to pay back. Not that a real estate project would not have that. You'd have personal guarantee while you construct it. And when you finish it and you open it, if it goes bad, here are the keys and you're off it. Yeah, okay. you're, not on, you're not on the obligation. But I knew, given what the nature of this was, that there had been no likelihood of success without that. But it was a number I could, I could survive if all things went bad, if you were. <laughs> so I said, uh, well, Ms. Mr. Carter, I have one change <laughs> that I think is important to you, and I don't want to tell you something that's not valid. I said, what I described to you was a beautiful country club, but however, instead of a golf course, we have a race course. <laughs> well, Mr. Siegel, racing's a business down here. And you think it's a good thing? And you're gonna be the endorser of that? No, we'll do it. And that's that's what happened. Nice Southern logic. 
It made sense. Yeah. Racing is a business down there. Yeah. It's not around here. Right. But down there, racing's a business. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's real money involved in That's it. That's right. That's serious. Okay. Yeah. So he, he got that real fast. He was a very smart guy. Yeah. I mean, it, at that era, I mean, it legitimately was a really, really big and booming business. As yeah. Far as southern what, car racing. Yeah. But it's from Charlotte area? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. they got it real fast. Yeah. And I was on the paper anyhow. I'm yeah. on the guarantee. Yeah, so yes. Because so I assume that makes a loan much easier if you're like, look, you can, you can rob me blind if I get this wrong. So. Well, the point is that they know they're going to get paid back. Right. Okay. And that's all that they count. Even if it goes, if it goes upside down. It's not like they'll never get their money back. Yeah, right. And if it takes me, you know, a decade to do it, I'll have to do it, but I'll have to give it back to them. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. But they know I'm not going away. Right. Okay. So they were very good. And then, which I thought was kind of amusing, once again, in, in the culture that I was not used to, mm -hmm. whenever we'd ask for a drawdown against uh, the construction, we'd make out the 20-page the AIA form filling out uh, how much we've done and uh, what we paid and attach the receipts. And right. it's a very formal, very structured, and you, you have engineers all over you to decide yep. that you've fully done this and you've fully done that. Well, they had a wonderful fellow called Johnny Jones. Johnny Jones was his second in command. He was as smart as a whip. And he took all those, uh, those papers that I sent down there and he'd send me the money. He'd send it fast. Couldn't wire it. They didn't have wire. Send me a check. Why are you shaming me? <laughs> I didn't show up. Because they didn't have a fax machine. They yeah. didn't have they didn't have uh, wiring capability. Right. And they closed at twelve o'clock for lunch. <laughs> this was like what year? Nineteen ninety nine. In Alton, Virginia. In Alton, Virginia, banking didn't even have the internet. Yeah. Nothing. They'd send me a check by United States Post Office and it'd come to my thing and I'd put it in yeah. and I'd pay the bills, okay? Right, right. And then one day he called me up and said, Harvey, you, you're giving me a lot of trouble down here. You're sending me too much paperwork. Just tell me how much money you need each month. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. It's a different world. And that's, yeah. it was a different world. Yeah. I don't know how I managed. I walked into a twilight zone, <laughs> really. Yeah, right. And I got the opportunity to do something that is not duplicatable anywhere on the planet again, yeah. ever. I was the beneficiary of a special set of, yeah. of, of things that came together at the right place, at the right time, with the right people, yeah. in the right environment. And for that, I am eternally grateful. And I think a lot of races are too. Oh, 100%. Have, have you seen my cousin Vinny? I was going to say my Uncle Harvey. Oh, I, yeah, 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 right. I was about to say my Uncle Harvey. <laughs> have you seen my cousin Vinny? Yeah. Is this, is this, is there any, do you watch this? Yeah, this is, you and I are on the same cycle, we know. But um, have you seen My Cousin Vinny? Like, is it a favorite, it's gotta be your favorite movie. movie. My Cousin Vinny. Yeah, I remember that. Was you're, like, you're, you're a little. My Uncle Harvey. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Mr. Harvey, like, everything about this describes everything in this movie. I remember the movie. I literally was like, no, I want to. <laughs> <laughs> is that the guy where he said two youths? Two, two youths, yeah. yeah. What is a youth? What's a grit? Yeah. What's a youth? <laughs> well, the clock well. is ticking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's Hazi track. Yeah. Now, so, so you can understand that I was grateful and I remember the, 
the first time the SVRA showed up at the track mm -hmm. yeah. after having heard that it was coming soon, coming soon, yeah. and they showed up. And it was a very, my wife was down there for that because yeah. I was racing at my own track, which was sort of amusing yeah. because <laughs> I, I, I had not driven the track. <laughs> what? I had only driven in a pickup truck to say where we put the barriers and move that back and do the, I was, I was working. So you'd never driven it at speed when you rebuilt it. Yes, uh, I had never driven it. The one thing that done. we did on the rebuild, I'm glad you brought that to my attention. The one thing we did, we kept the absolute center line of the track yeah. exactly the same way as it was when it was first built. And the only reason we did anything was to make it not 27 feet, which is three times nine. That's a barber green is nine, nine feet wide. That's how it got to be 27. I don't know what the heck you're talking about. Okay. Sorry. The <laughs> reason for the width. As of you the, know. The width of the track was 27 feet when I got there. Okay. So we ground it down, of course, because it was cracked all yeah, over. Yeah, yeah, right. And we were going to <clears throat> enlarge it three feet. A barber green is the big machine that they dump the uh, blacktop okay. in. Okay. And it spreads the blacktop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at 27 feet, it's three times the nine foot width. Oh, okay, so okay. you have to run it three times on right. each side, okay. Right. And that's why it was 27 sure. feet wide. I see. It really needs to be 30 feet at the minimum, mm -hmm. plus your curbs, of yeah, course. Right. So we needed to do that, and we, we, did, we widened it three feet to get to the three feet extra. And in order to make sure we didn't, you know, you could widen three feet on one side and then three feet here so that you could get a more, st a straighter, more, a more direct trajectory. Mm -hmm. But we didn't want to do that. Right. Let's stay the integrity of the track. Let's only move it to where it should be and keep the same mm -hmm. flow. Yeah, definitely. Okay? By keeping it that way, it was important that you don't lose the historic nature of this particular track. Right. Now you know, of course, that turn one is the turning radius of a of a of a, a motor grader. Right. Okay. Okay. So the motor grader mm -hmm. dictated how tight that turn could right. be. Oh, cool. And when they got down to the, you know, the, uh, the motor grader went across the farm and were. Ever they thought it was a good idea, they did it. Uh, and then when they got down to Oak Tree, well, they couldn't move that puppy. That was just way too big. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it was, you couldn't, you and I and three other guys couldn't get their arm around it. Right. So we're gonna leave that, let's go around that. And they went around it, of course. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, which is amusing, <laughs> but they couldn't move it. Yeah. So that's how Oak Tree got. They had to straighten it and then come from another direction so that they could create a turn around there. And coming down hog pen, you know, that was all the motor grader. Mm -hmm. Nothing more tight than that. The only tight one was down at Oak Tree. The uh, country club or the private club concept behind VIR when it started, uh, was that always the business plan and was that new? No. I really developed VIR because my wife said she should love to go to a place where it's mostly country club. 
So I said, okay, good. I think I got something going on here. <laughs> that was my justification. Uh, this private member concept had not existed in Motorsport no, prior. No. And uh, did anyone ask you for any sort of due diligence or was this simply a belief that you had? I believe that there are enough motorsport, motorsport guys around, enough real gear heads that would like to take their cars, become part of a club. There is no club that I knew of at the time. So today we, we've seen a huge growth of these sort of private member facilities. You know, you yourself expanded into New Jersey Motorsports Park. We've got Thermal out in Southern California. Autobahn. There's Autobahn, Monticello, uh, the motorsport I, I started a trend, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I, do, you, you know. do, you, do you ever meet the guys at like Thermal or at Monticello and be like, you asshole stole my ideas? Or is there like infighting? Nothing is more complimentary than being copied. Not if you're in the podcast business. <laughs> Imitation is the finest form of flattery. Doesn't get you no, more sponsors. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, I will say this though. <clears throat> I, I think that uh, being, being copied um, is a form of flattery. I'm not looking to be flattered, but I think that the motorsport guy who really loves his car or wants to race or wants to just drive it or wants to be around it and wants to have the experience I think that by itself has always been there. We just haven't had a place to go to uh, execute on it, you know? And so now we have a place. Right. And there are other places in other parts of the country. We couldn't serve the whole country anyhow. Sure. So, uh, and no one's driving from upstate New York to uh, the VIR. Okay. However, I did institute a dual membership between New Jersey and, and VIR, right. so that you can, if you join one, go to the other, and so forth. Sure. And that's great if you have t four tracks now to go to. Yeah. So, so with VIR specifically, what, what does it feel like for you on opening day of that racetrack, having driven there you know, decades before, kind of stop racing completely, you go back, you see it as a cow pasture one day, you're sitting in people's kitchens negotiating on property value, to then going to town hall meeting essentially, and then now to building it. Was it like seeing a child born? Chris Economaki was down there on that day, and that was a lot of fun to have him. Uh, I hadn't driven on the track myself, but it was the SVRA event that he came down for. So uh, we have some footage of him being interviewed, and he too said, uh, you know, it's finest track in America, what, he, what quote they yeah. gave him, but uh, he was very kind. I said, you're very kind, Chris, so I appreciate that. Um, and he drove around in uh, a golf cart with me, and so I wasn't getting any racing in, even <laughs> though I was supposed to be racing. But I have Chris Economaki there, what am I going to do? I'm not going to diss him, I'm <laughs> yeah. going to hang with him, and. He was uh, the professor of motorsport in our, in our country, probably in the world, you know? Yeah. So uh, I spent a lot of time with him, and uh, on that day we opened, um, amusingly for myself, I ended up uh, not having done anything on the track itself, uh, 39th out of uh, 45, <laughs> okay? So there had to be some really slow people, okay, <laughs> behind me because I, you know, I knew I knew better where it went, but I didn't know how it's to get there. Okay, okay. 
So uh, it turns out that there are um, 36 slots underneath the canopy. <laughs> so you go into all these great lengths. I, underneath the canopy, there are 36 slots, yeah. okay? Yeah. Uh, for the first 36 right. people, okay? And I'm along the fence line in the sun and I'm looking at number 39 because uh, that's the spot I was on that day. And I'm thinking to myself, there's something really wrong with this picture. <laughs> there's something really, really wrong. That's good. And I, I said, whatever it is, I get 36 no matter how slow I am. <laughs> house rules. That's the one time you wielded your power so you could have a little bit of shame. No, but I didn't on that day. I wasn't going to do it. I was trying to be diplomatic, right. not, you know, throw my weight around. I was just trying to be one of the guys. I was, after all, 39th out of 45. Right, right, yeah. Okay. So at VIR, there's a uh, reward for going a little bit quicker. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, in, you're in the shade, pal. I got to made the shade. You're in the shade or out of the rain, whatever it was. That day was hot, and I remembered it. <laughs> That's what you took away from the... Yeah, <laughs> the first day and of the track being open. It was, it was rewarding, I, I do admit, that uh, on that day after the, I guess it was the luncheon, um, I thanked everybody uh, for coming uh, to our inaugural SVRA event and hope you guys uh, enjoyed yourself. And uh, my wife was there. Thankfully, she saw that I did get a... A standing ovation. Right, right. <laughs> so I said, "Well, I did it for you, and I did it for me." You know. <laughs> when you were building, what was the single biggest obstacle that you didn't expect? I don't know if you know about the house itself. No, we, know. we assume we know nothing. Have have? Well, it's interesting. The house was not was an unrestorable home that had fallen on hard times, been vandalized, all the, all the mantles were gone, the, the banisters were gone, the, the, um, the windows on either side of the main, of the front entrance of it, which were, uh, you know, Tiffany-style windows, they were gone too. And the weather had pretty much gone through the house. Mm -hmm. So it was unrestorable, grown up around it, slave quarters everywhere. Oh. That, sorry guys, but that's what right, was there. We didn't do it. <laughs> there were we lots and it. lots of slave quarters because that was the only way. Southern Virginia. Yeah, it was Southern Virginia, okay? And um, they were in such disrepair that it made no sense to try to save them. Mm -hmm. um, and I reached the point where we were either gonna throw this building down for our clubhouse or uh, restore it. But because it was unrestorable, I decided to restore it. Huh. <laughs> sure. They said it couldn't be done. And I did so not by being clever, but by being uh, very uh, stubborn. And being stubborn was, in this case, worked best because if we threw it down and built a new, it would just be another clubhouse. 
And if you've been there, which I assume you have, yes, sir. you can see that this 1800 home, which was a, the architect was a, um, a freed slave. I don't know if you know that. No, did not know that. Uh, and it's considered to be uh, an architectural um, important home. Mm -hmm. What we did is, uh, since the trees grown around completely, there was th growing through the porch. Uh, I found a fellow in New Jersey who had done some work for me. He was a he was a restorer, and he was a uh, a historian. He understood all these old homes with the sensitivity that I understood what uh, the, the, uh, the early American home and farm should look like. If you were at my home, you'd understand that. But the point is, he knew how to do this. And Connie and I did want to get it done quickly. But I said, it will be better if it's done right than done quickly. Mm -hmm. And so we took no shortcuts, and we left him alone. He had one worker bee, and he did it. And he essentially did the whole thing himself. Jeez. And yes, it took a, probably an extra year, but you will see that all of those big windows that are 15 feet high, or the 13 feet high and the 15 foot high, that they work. Mm -hmm. You can pick them up and down and all the old panes are perfectly in there. And he found old glass and replaced all the old glass the correct way. And the windows go up and down because they have the counterbalances the way they were built years ago. And if you get to the front door and you pull on the ringer, it's a wire attached that goes down below the floor over to the, um, the side of the balance uh, of the uh, staircase goes up and rings a little bell. That's how it was in 1800s, and that's how you can ring the bell today. He restored and built all the mantles. He restored and did all of the banisters. So what you see really is, is a restoration job. Built all the Tiffany glass to either side of the main door himself. He's recently passed away, but he, I gotta tell you, by himself, because he knew what to do, I didn't have to look over his shoulder. I didn't have to tell him what to do except go faster. <laughs> but other than that, I said to Connie, You're not, if you rush, you won't get what you want. But if you let him do it, you'll have something special. And that's what we have, something very special. There are very few homes like that. Fortunately, one thing that saved it is that we're tin roof, and a tin roof did not allow uh, water to come in and, and destroy the structural integrity. Yeah. That was the magic. Wow. That's the true story. Thomas Day, that's the name of the ar architect. And he has quite a few homes built in the area because he became a very accomplished architect from a freed slave. All right, so city of Danville. Sell me on this town. Dan Vegas. Well, Danville actually is, uh, was the last bastion of the Confederate Army, right? Yeah. yeah. And so it had a lot of history, uh, and it enjoyed the benefits of VIR when it was operating in the old days. So they didn't have anything to do with us. 
They didn't need us. Uh, they didn't care. In fact, a lot of people from the town never even got out to see it, even after it was done. Amazingly. Right. They had an internationally acclaimed facility, and they never bothered to drive out 15 minutes from their downtown to see it. But they got the benefits of it. We filled all the hotel rooms. Mm -hmm. and we, uh, you know, we got the, uh, the restaurants full and everybody was doing fine as a result once we opened. Uh, how does Connie transition from... She... Go ahead, finish yeah, uh, your okay. Explain to me Connie's transition from basically starting out as your assistant, essentially, yeah to now being track owner and president? Yeah, Connie kind of earned her way in it. You know, she was terrific at, uh, at executing the crazy uh, notions I had. And so then how does she get the rest of your ownership? She, uh, she brought somebody in to substitute my uh, lion share. Okay. And uh, she has a new uh, a new investor now. Was this a choice? Pardon? Was this a choice you wanted to sell? I yeah, I was doing some estate planning. It was uh, it was time. I was gonna, you know, either I was gonna package it up and sell it. I didn't want to sell it out, but it was time for me not to be taking my every other week down to BIR. Mm -hmm. Uh, even though I had the benefit of going there uh, just to fly into Danville, that was wonderful, mm -hmm. but, you know, it's still a week away and kids are getting older and I'm getting older and time to go. We got it going. We had a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> it was fun. I mean, I said that to uh, the, uh, the original manager. I said, look what we're doing. We're designing our own racetrack. I designed the, I did do that. I split the track into two. You know about that, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, the northern. Yeah. The north and the south. And I tried to make a, a pretty good corkscrew out of one of them. And it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's small, but it's, it's yeah. fun. And if you can go on the north, the south, the full, or the grand. Yeah. Have you been on the grand? Yeah. Like That's, yeah, I'm exhausted hearing about the yeah. grant. <laughs> Boy, it's, it's hard work. Yeah. <laughs> How much would you say percentage, if you had to choose two categories, love and profit for VIR as an investment for you, how much would you say was just for the love of the entirety versus actually trying to make profit? I just didn't want to burn too much off. That's all. Yeah, so it wasn't something that you were really <laughs> concerned with making money. You just wanted to do it. I wanted to do it because I felt, uh, initially I felt I could make more money than it turns out to be, <laughs> which is not unusual. <clears throat> but I felt I would always be in the plus column if I did it correctly, and that I would reset the bar at a higher level that would separate us because we had incredible things going for it. You had the history of this track. It was an amazing facility to drive on. I mean, that track, the blacktop alone, just those turns and the corners and the sweepers and the tight ones and the hog pen and, I mean, it's so much fun. <laughs> if you turn in a really good lap at BIR, you've done something good. 
And if you're an amateur and you turn a good lap, I mean, you know you felt something good about it. Well, I got to find out one thing. Sure. Yeah. Did you guys have fun doing this? Yeah. Like, why yeah. did we do this? This is way too much work than I have fun. <laughs> <laughs> We're not exactly getting rich. I, I mean, meow, 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 meow. I'm finished. I'm making